So we are in Hebrews chapter 12, if you have a Bible. Now the good news is this morning that this passage we're going to deal with today is the conclusion to the body of the letter. All right, don't get too excited. It's not the last sermon in Hebrews just yet, but this passage in chapter 12, verse 18 to 29, rounds out the argument that the author began right at the beginning when he jumped into it straight in chapter 1, verse 1. So this is kind of bringing everything together today. We've been working our way, if you're new to shore, through Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, this ancient letter that's found its way into our New Testament, written to some Jewish Christ followers in the city of Rome in the first century. And uh, we now come to a passage that just is the, really the culmination of a lot of what's been talked about in the letter. So the author wants to bring back front and center what he has been trying to press on these people, this audience, right from the beginning. And you know, if you've tracked with us through the series, that he's not going to do it in some bland, dry, uh, descriptive way. This guy is creative. This guy is genius with his arguments and with his ability to construct imaginative portrayals of Christ. Not imaginative in the sense of being false, but creative. And so he's going to do the same thing here. And what he does here, we get to chapter 12, verse 18. He starts working with these two images of two mountains, two separate mountains, all right? And these are going to represent really important concepts that he wants us to grasp. We're going to read, they're dealt with one by one, okay? So let's read just the first few verses, uh, 18 through 21. This gives us a description of the first mountain that he's going to want to talk about here. Chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. So this can be kind of a random and vague picture until you realize that the background to what's going on here is the Exodus story. Right? And you can go and read this for yourself back in Exodus 19 and 20. This is uh, the time in the history of Israel when the children of Israel have been led out of slavery in the, in the nation of Egypt and they've crossed over the border. God has led them through the Red Sea. You remember the story, they parted the sea. Moses has led them through on dry ground. They've crossed over into the Sinai Peninsula and this just arid desert wasteland. The first stop for these millions of Hebrew people in the, in the desert of Sinai was a massive mountain called Mount Sinai. It's a real place. People still go there today. It's not like some Lord of the Rings fairy tale mountain. It's a real desert. It's not particularly good looking, but it's, an, it's a mountain. And so the Israel camped at the foot of this mountain. And God said to Moses, I want you to come up the mountain right to the top. Everyone else stays down the bottom. If they try and climb, they are going to die. You alone come up and I will descend, God says, to the top of the mountain to meet with you. So Moses makes this trek up to the top of the mountain and he stays there. And when God finally comes down to meet with Moses, this is not some little back corner conversation. This is a dramatic, dramatic scene. God descends down to the top of Mount Sinai in this huge billow of smoke, this huge fiery furnace that can be clearly seen from the bottom of the mountain. The whole mountain physically starts to shake Darkness covers the land. There are a huge storm moves in. There's thunder. There is lightning. There is this booming voice. And only at the blast of a trumpet could the nation of Israel move in 
to the base of the mountain, to the foot of the mountain. They still couldn't touch it. But when the trumpet blast rang, they would come a little bit further forward, as close to God as they could possibly get, hoping and praying that their man Moses at the top of the mountain was doing okay. This would have been a terrifying, terrifying scene. Remember that Israel is still only just beginning to learn about God. They don't know about Jesus. They don't have the cross. They don't know the whole story. They don't have the Bible. All they know is that some God has appeared to Moses, done a few signs and wonders, and now they've left Egypt. They're standing here not really knowing what this God, Yahweh, is actually like. And now they're getting this massive physical phenomenon uh, at, at the mountain in the skies representing something of the character of this God to the point that even Moses himself is said here in Hebrews to say, I'm trembling with fear. And the key attribute really that God is wanting to press on the hearts of Israel with all of these physical phenomena that are going on is the idea, the concept of his holiness. They didn't know a lot about him. They had the Egyptian gods as points of reference. But one of the ways in which gods in the ancient world were alleged to prove their power and alleged to demonstrate their superiority was by performing works and works of power in the natural realm. And so here is God demonstrating in a profound way that he has mastery over all the physical elements of earth and the heavens. He is the supreme God over any other that might be claimed to exist. And holiness, the holiness of God, remember by holiness we're not just talking about God's moral perfection, although that's included in it, but we're talking about God's absolute transcendence, his complete otherness, he is other than anything you can imagine. He is any, other than anything we can conceive of or ask for or dream up. He is in a category all by himself, inhabited by one. He, that's it. Everything else is in the category of other than God. He is holy. He is other. He is transcendent. This is the picture at Sinai. And this picture of God provokes in the people at the base of Mount Sinai a particular reaction, a particular response, and that response is fear. Moses says to the people, God has shown up like this so that you will learn to fear him. Even Moses himself says, I'm trembling with fear. This fear, though, at Sinai is characterized by terror. It's characterized by being afraid. It's characterized by absolute trembling, not knowing if things are going to be okay, not knowing if this is safe at all, or in any given moment, is God just going to come and strike us all with lightning? We don't know. We don't have a clue what's going on here. Is he good? Is he not good? These people were utterly, utterly terrified. Now, if you know the Sinai story, if you know the Exodus narrative there, you know one of the, the, really the key thing that happens at Sinai is that God enters into a covenant with his people or a treaty or, or a contract, a relational contract. You do this and I will do that. That's the place where that contract was made. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that, that whole scene at Sinai, that whole story, that whole picture, that really becomes characteristic, characteristic of the whole old covenant. The whole old system that God made with Moses, it, it was characterized by distance, that you couldn't really get close to God, to the point that people begged Moses, do not let God speak to us face to face, or else we are going to die. That was the nature of the old covenant. You couldn't get close to him. There was this raw picture of God's holiness. Your relationship with God is always mediated to some degree by at least one priest. There's various numbers of steps before you could ever get anywhere near God. This idea of fear and distance and terror and trembling. The author says, characterize what it was like under the old system. And he says, but that is not where you've come. That's not where you are. That's where they were. That's the covenant they grew up in. 
That's what they know. That's where many of their friends and family still were, working in that system, working in that relationship with God. That's how it was. But the author says, you have not come to that mountain. You haven't come to Sinai. You've come to somewhere else. And this is the second mountain here in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Now, Mount Zion is a mountain in Israel. It's the mountain on which the city of Jerusalem sits. And in the Bible, when you see Zion mentioned, especially in the Psalms, you can almost always just interchange it with the word Jerusalem. It just means the same thing. Zion came to characterize Jerusalem so that people can say, we're going to Zion, they mean we're going to Jerusalem. And Zion is particularly important here for two reasons. One, it is where the temple was built. It's where the temple sat until it was destroyed in AD 70. And that represented the presence of God with his people. And secondly, Zion was the place where Jesus died. Not technically right on top of the Zion mountain area today, but in the Jerusalem area, just outside the old city of Jerusalem, this is the area where the cross was located. And so Zion then becomes, just as Sinai represented the old covenant that God made with his people, Zion represents the new covenant that is made through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the passage that follows here from verse 22 through to 24, it really is you should just read this in your own time and meditate on it because it is just one of the richest and deepest expositions of what Christ has done for us that you will find in the entire New Testament. So just indulge me for a minute, all right? We're just going to stroll through this. Just soak it up. There's just some rich phrases in here. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You remember that from Hebrews 11? Where all those heroes of faith in the Old Testament, they were all looking for the heavenly city. They were all looking ahead for that heavenly home, that heavenly city. And now here is Hebrews, the very next chapter, saying, you've come there. It's here. You have entered into the heavenly city, that which all the ancients were looking for. It's here in your midst through the Spirit of God. And you have now come to this heavenly city, this habitation where you can dwell with God. And you've come to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Remember the last time the angels showed up in Hebrews? When was it? Back in Hebrews 1, you remember? Right, way, way back. When was that about Easter we dealt with that? And the angels there were dealt with in fairly negative terms. You know, they were subordinate to the sun. They were inferior. They were not as good as the sun. And now here, here are the angels reappearing. You see how the, the argument is coming full circle now. And here are the angels. They haven't got an inferiority complex here. They haven't been repressed. They haven't got self-esteem issues here. They are just in joyful assembly. They don't mind being subservient to the Son. They are now gathering, as it were, at the foot of the cross, worshipping Jesus with all of creation. That's the picture. So there's this huge party scene that's being built. Right? The angels are invited. It's all going on in Mount Zion. And then you have come to the church of the firstborn. The firstborn is who? Jesus. Why? Because he was the first to be raised to eternal life, physically, bodily, from the dead. And when Jesus was raised, he was raised as the first of all those who would one day be raised with him. That's everybody who names the name of Jesus and follows him. We will one day share in that glorious resurrection when our bodies are made to be like his glorious body. That's still to come. For now we experience a spiritual resurrection in this life, raised to new life with him. One day it'll be physical. There'll be a physical resurrection. So Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, the prototype of the new human. 
and all those who are associated with him, all those who are joined to him, who have been made alive in Christ and have the hope now of that future resurrection, that great company of people throughout history, throughout the entire world, is referred to here as the church. In Greek, the ecclesia literally means the gathering the gathering of the elect, the gathering of the saints, those who have come alive in Christ and now look forward to being raised with him one day. We're all invited to the party as well. Those whose names are written in heaven, that's the Lamb's book of life, you know, that records the names of those who have accepted Christ and therefore have that future hope. You have come to God. Just listen to that for a second. You have come to God. That's never said of Sinai. Well, we gloss over, you've come to God, yes, yes. But that was never said under the old covenant. You never come to God. You never get that close. Not even Moses, not even Aaron, they didn't get that close. Even when Moses met with God, it was in the, in the cloud, God's presence was protected. When Aaron was in the temple, it was always, again, the, the cloud. You never really quite got there. And yet here we are in the new covenant now. You have come to God, quite simply. And you've come to God, the judge of all, the same God who will one day judge all people. He's the God that we now approach to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. What on earth does that mean? There's a few different um, options. Scholars are kind of divided over what this means, but there are different interpretations. I'll just give you the right one, okay? No. <laughs> I'm not really that arrogant. No. But uh, I think most logically what this refers to is the people back in Hebrews 11 again. The, the spirits of the righteous, all those heroes of faith who died without seeing the, the promise fulfilled on the cross, now they exist in the heavenly realm with God in that, in that spirit form. And their spirits have been made complete just as ours one day will be. At the end of Hebrews 11, you notice that little phrase that they will not be made perfect, or same word, complete, apart from us. So this is why, whatever side of the cross you lived on in the Bible, you're always saved through the cross of Christ, even if you lived before Jesus. Because ultimately these people died, they went to be with God, they hoped in Christ even without knowing Him. And now that He has come, their spirits in heaven have been made perfect, just as we've been made perfect here on earth. So they're invited to the party. You've got the angels there, we are there, all those heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, they are all now gathering with us. And here it is, verse 24, you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You remember, He is the broker between you and God and between the people of God and God. And this is just my favorite phrase in the book of Hebrews, all right? Can we just take a minute with this? This last one here in verse 24. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Who was the first blood to be shed in the Bible? Abel's blood. He was the son of Adam and Eve. His brother Cain and he offered animal sacrifices to God and Cain's sacrifice was offered without any thought or care. His heart wasn't in it. It was unacceptable to God, and therefore God rejected it. And so Cain burned with anger against Abel. He just hated him. He was jealous. He took him out into a field, and he killed him. It was the first murder in the Bible, first time blood had ever been shed. And when God confronted Cain about the murder of his brother, he said to him, your brother's blood speaks, it cries out from the ground. And figuratively, we can imagine Abel's blood speaks of vengeance. It speaks of hatred. It speaks of that rupturing of human relationship, that fracturing of a relationship between brother and brother. It speaks of that curse of sin in Genesis 3, now beginning to spread through the generations, now beginning to permeate every aspect of reality, drag everybody down, that, that sin that runs right through the human heart. It speaks of selfishness, and it speaks of the depravity that exists within each one of us. That was the blood of Abel. And now we have Jesus the new Abel, 
the one whose blood has been shed, but it now speaks a different word to us. It speaks a word of freedom. It speaks a word of release from captivity. It speaks a word of love. It speaks a word of reconciliation, the putting back together of relationship between God and us, between us and us, relationships between each other. It speaks of the righting of wrongs, the restoring of justice, the giving of hope, the mending of wounds, the binding up of the brokenhearted. It speaks of all these things. Jesus, the new Abel, his blood has been shed, and it speaks to us an infinitely better word than that of Abel's blood of old. Isn't that a great concept? Isn't that a fantastic metaphor? The author just came up with this stuff. He's like, Abel, Jesus, here it is. Brilliant. This is just genius. And so here is the new covenant laid out for us here, this wonderful metaphor of Mount Zion that we've now come to. And above all things, if Sinai emphasized to us the holiness of God, Zion speaks to us of his love. The lavish love, the extravagant love, the prodigal love of a prodigal father almost wasteful, just absolutely extravagant love poured out upon us, so undeserving, so filthy, so failed, so corrupt, and yet God just pours out his love upon us anyway. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So here are these two mountains, Sinai and Zion, representing the old covenant, covenant God made with Moses, and the new covenant, the covenant he makes with Jesus, side by side, the holiness of God, and the love of God. And then the author changes tact here in verse 25. He kind of almost wish in some ways he'd left it there. But he, he shifts gears quite dramatically. And just listen, see what you think of this last couple of paragraphs. Verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that's those under the old covenant, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Those words that Mark sung to us before. In some ways, it sounds a little bit jarring. <clears throat> the author just, just transitions here, and, and suddenly we've gone from the lofty heights of Mount Zion, the love of God, the mercy, the freedom, and now it's this warning. It's don't fall away. Don't reject God. If he dealt with them severely, how bad do you think it's going to be for you? Why is it that, that suddenly things seem to be dragged down like this? It's because it's very easy when you, when you sit side by side the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, like the author is doing here, it's very easy when you set Sinai beside Zion to get the feeling that we're almost dealing here with two gods. You feel like that sometimes? And this is, honestly, an accusation that is leveled against Christians all the time by non-Christians. How can you reconcile the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New? The God of Sinai, the God of the Old Testament, seems to be this, this authoritarian tyrant who is angry, who is judgmental and just wants to send lightning bolts down upon people to punish them for his own self-righteousness. And the God of Zion, the God of the New Testament, seems to be this loving, merciful, big teddy bear softy. What's going on here? How do you switch? And so the, what the author is so concerned to do here at the end of this passage is to make sure that we understand that God's character, though the covenant changes, God's character never does. He is the same, same God 
that entered into the old covenant, that entered into the new covenant. God is holy and God is loving always. And though these pictures may emphasize one attribute or the other, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can see this in the Exodus story. You can see it at Sinai. Even though this picture, the author almost overstates the point here to draw out this incredible holiness, this, this fearful portrait of God. But the whole foundation to that story is the love of God for his children. He was the one who drew them out of Egypt. Why? Because he'd chosen them from among the nations to be a people for his own possession. And even in Exodus 19, just before God reveals himself to Moses, he recaps and says, I've drawn the children of Israel out of Egypt, drawn them to myself, and carried them on eagles' wings. If that is not the declaration of a loving God for his people, what is? It is the love of God that compelled him to rescue his people from slavery, to bring them to himself. And likewise on Zion, though that picture that we get, the celebratory picture of, of Christ and what's happened, it emphasizes the love of God. The cross also stands, we can't forget this, as the supreme demonstration of the holiness of God. Because when the, when the holiness of God encounters sin and, and human wrongdoing, it becomes wrath. And that is not a concept that we like to talk about much because it makes us squirm in our seats. And wrath, really, there's no better way to say it than this. It is righteous anger. And this is the response of God to sin. He cannot tolerate it. He does not like it. He is repulsed by it. And on the cross, what happened is that God unleashed a torrent of righteous anger upon his son. And though it pains us to even admit it, we have to affirm as Bible-believing Christians that it was ultimately the Father who punished the son on the cross. It was the Father who condemned the Son on the cross. It was the Father who, who, in a sense, beat and tortured and whipped and wounded and ultimately murdered the Son of God on the cross. That's not nice to talk about, but He has borne those afflictions, and it was God Himself who cursed His own Son and then abandoned Him on the cross. And that, friends, should speak to us of the holiness of God and the incredible detest that he has, the seriousness of our sin, and that was dealt with fully and finally and completely. The righteous anger of a holy God unleashed upon his son, and his wrath was completely spent upon Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean God's no longer holy. It doesn't mean he leaves his holiness behind. He is still the holy God, and he still demands holiness of us. He still comes to us as a God who doesn't like that's too soft, who hates sin and who desires that we put it to death in our lives. That's the holy God. And so we have to make sure as new covenant believers that we always keep together the holiness of God and the love of God. Even though the cross seems to present only maybe the love of God on first glance, it is both holiness and love. Some people want to separate those two things as two different attributes of God, so His holiness and His love. I think in some ways that makes God seem a little bit bipolar, like He's got these two different sides kind of pulling like Jekyll and Hyde type of thing. I think much better to see them as one attribute, an attribute that Stanley Grins describes as holy love. God is holy love. I think this was incredibly well portrayed in C.S. Lewis' book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. It was a little bit of dialogue that didn't make it into the movie. I watched the movie again this week. I couldn't see it in there. It may be, and maybe I just missed it. But there is a scene just after the children get to Narnia, and they're meeting with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and then they start talking about Aslan, who represents Christ and, and God allegor allegorically in the movie. 
And as Mr. Bieber starts talking about God, the portrait that he's painting is quite fierce and quite daunting for the children. And so the youngest child, Lucy, pipes up and she says, then isn't he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Safe? Whoever said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. Now I think with those words, C.S. Lewis just brilliantly captured this dichotomy or this creative tension between the holiness and the love of God. He is not safe. He is no tame lion, as Aslan is described later in the movie. But because he is also profoundly loving towards us, that unsafeness is not some irrational tyrant who will just smite us down at the first opportunity. That unsafeness is for our benefit. It works to our good. It works in favor of God's love, which always seeks our best. And our best is to be in relationship with God. This is so well reflected in this final phrase in the passage where God is described as a consuming fire. And again, it's uncomfortable imagery because, let's be honest, it is an image of judgment. A consuming fire was not a nice, fuzzy feeling. It's not like that, you know. Fire is such a popular word today among Christian circles. You find that? You know, like every Christian conference is like fire of this and God fire and that and spirit fire conference here and everything. It's like, set me on fire. That's not what you want to be saying around this phrase, okay? God is a consuming fire is God the, the righteous and holy and wrathful God. But again, it has to be taken in its context. And when you go back to Deuteronomy 4, 24, you see God describing himself to Moses this way. He says, the Lord your God is a consuming fire. And there's three words that follow that that you have to catch. A jealous God. Now, that's a little bit funny because we sometimes assume jealousy can only ever be bad, can only ever be an unhealthy emotion or attribute. But okay, let me give you this example. If my wife Anna came to me and said, I've decided to run off with this other guy and shack up with him because I like him a lot better than you. So I think it would be better for everyone if you just took off. I would become very quickly a jealous husband. Yeah? And, and my love for her, when it encounters some kind of threat to the relationship, is turned to wrath. And, and my righteous fury would be unleashed against this third-party meddling punk guy, right? <laughs> so, and this is a hypothetical situation, just so you know. Right? Just so you know. Just before the elders come and close the service. And, close the church. It's uh, hypothetical. But that's the kind of jealousy. We're not talking about like a petty jealousy for something that is not yours. We're talking about a jealousy for something or someone that belongs to you. And God's jealousy is that, that fierce loving protection of his children because we belong to him. And the very best thing for us is to be in relationship with him. That's the beginning of a fulfilled life. That's the beginning of an abundant life here on earth is to be in relationship with God, to have that vertical dimension set and so when God senses a threat to that relationship, either through something you do, some stupid decision or a path you're going down that is taking you away from him, or through something that is done to you, he becomes the consuming fire. He becomes the jealous God who will fight to the death to protect his relationship with you and win you back because that's how much he loves you. And it means it'll come sometimes through the conviction of God's spirit in your life to bring you back on the path that you need to be on. Sometimes through events, you know, God's plan B is sometimes difficulties that come into people's lives if they really need a wake-up call. God reserves the right to do that. doesn't mean we attribute everything that's difficult in life to the hand of God, but we know that God does have that weapon in his arsenal if he needs it because his greatest priority is not your happiness, it's your holiness. And that means God will do what he needs to do to pursue you down that path. So God is a consuming fire, but he is a jealous God. He is the God who is not safe, 
but who is very, very good. He is the God who is holiness, but he's also loving. And keeping those things in some kind of tension, and it's not always easy, but that should lead us to respond to him in a way that's described here in verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. If an exposure to the raw holiness of God at Sinai evoked fear in the people of Israel, then an apprehension of the love and the holiness of the God who is unsafe but very good should provoke in us a response of reverence. Reverence is not terror. It's not being afraid. It's not trembling. But it's understanding that God is both holy and he is both loving. And it is showing him the due respect that he deserves, not just in these times of worship. Worshiping God acceptably doesn't just mean singing songs with the right attitude. It means the way we conduct our lives is in a posture of humility and obedience and recognition of who God ultimately is. And let me, as we close this morning, just give you one really practical way that I could see this working out in our lives. There are many, many examples of the way that you could exhibit reverence for God. But think of just this one, the words that you speak. How could the words that you speak to others show your reverence for the holy and loving God? Think of, some of you are in situations where you're an employer, where you're a manager, you have people reporting to you. What words do you speak to them? How, what's the tone? What's the flavor? What's the style? How much dignity do you show your employees when you speak to them during the day? Because it's ultimately a reflection that you might not connect the dots this way, but this is the logic. That's ultimately a reflection of your reverence for God. Because if you revere and you respect the Lord Almighty, then you will revere and respect the pinnacle of his creation, humanity. Other men and women, boys and girls made in his image, who bear his name, who bear his fingerprint, his palm print on their lives, whether or not they follow him, and our duty there is to respect them out of reverence for God. What about the words you speak among your families, the words you speak to your husband, to your wife, to your mum and your dad, brothers and sisters? How much reverence for God are you demonstrating through the words that you show to others? So many families just kind of get by on grunts and lifeless words, you know, snaps and growls and, and grumps all day long without any real conversation. And I'm bad at this too. I grunt and growl with the rest of them, you know. I'm, a typical guy in that regard. But how much is our, the words we speak in our, in our homes and our families reflecting a reverence for God and reflecting a respect for the, for the relationships that he's given us and the families within which he's placed us? Showing respect for him means showing respect for those who we are bound to in family relationships. And what about the words you speak to yourself? You know, so often we speak, maybe not out loud, but in your head, we can speak such self-accusing, self-condemning, self-demeaning words and we just push ourselves lower and lower and lower you know words like loser fat unfriendly unconfident i can't do it i'm not good enough i'm a failure all my flaws all my mistakes nobody likes me i'm ugly these words friends they just rob us of life they just strip us of our dignity and we need to learn to speak new words to ourselves out of a reverence for god and a reverence for the fact that we are created in His image. We are those who bear within our own bodies the Imago Dei, the image of God. And we reflect Him. We reflect His own nature and His own character as those who He's, he's given dominion over this earth and has created us fearfully and wonderfully, the Bible says. We need to st start speaking fresh words, naming ourselves in new ways, 
affirming our own dignity, not pride, not arrogance, but affirming our inherent worth and value as God's precious children. Friends, that is showing reverence for God. That's one way in which we can learn to serve the God who is holy and loving at the same time. You know, when you become a follower of Jesus, maybe some of you here haven't made that step yet, but when, when, when you take that step, your whole life is really a pilgrimage from Sinai to Zion. It's this pilgrimage from this picture of God, this distant, tyrannical, fear-based relationship with God to a much deeper and much more mature understanding of who God is, holy and loving, the holy lover, if you can handle the imagery, the God who is unsafe, but who is very, very good, the God who is a consuming fire, but who is fiercely and lovingly jealous for you. And as we learn to balance delicately both of those sides, both of those halves, however you see it, then we will be drawn into a posture of reverence for God and awe at who he is and a compulsion to serve him out of a grateful and a genuine heart. Let's pray together. God, we acknowledge you this morning as holy. Your word says that you are God in heaven and here we are on earth. So let our words be few. And we just stand amazed at your holiness and yet your profound love that drove you to the cross for us. Lord, help us to bring those ideas together in our lives. Help us, help us to live on the very top of Mount Zion. Or perhaps help us today to take one further step towards that heavenly city if we're not already there. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.